This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. The track you've just been listening to is There's a Ghost in My House by R. Dean Taylor, a track from the best of Northern Soul, which might just tip you off that you're about to listen to a Halloween special. I'm Alex Fitch, and coming up later in the show, you'll hear my interviews with director Richard Stanley and composer Simon Boswell, who are talking about the legendary 1990s sci-fi film Hardware. First off, though, here's my interview with Jeff Lieberman about the definitive 1970s killer worm movie Squirm. This was recorded at last year's Cine Access Festival at the University of Brighton. Out of your career so far, you've directed half a dozen horror movies, which suggests that um, it's a genre that you keep on being attracted back to. Yeah, um, there was a long gap. I did um, Squirm, Blue Sunshine, and Just Before Dawn within, uh, from 76 to 80. So in four years, I did three films. Mm. And then there was a gap of seven years. Uh, 1987, I did Remote Control. And then the big gap was till 2004, I did Satan's Little Helper. However, uh, contrary to what the fans thought, that I either died or <laughs> you know, was in a coma all that time or just went out of the business, I was doing 
TV documentaries, TV movies, uh, just a whole bunch of things that just horror fans don't follow, but mm. I was working all, all that time. Mm. And presumably a career as a director was what you wanted to do when you were you know, looking for what you were going to spend your future doing. But was horror the, uh, the genre that you thought it would definitely be your destiny, or were you open to all sorts of genres? Um, absolutely not. I, um, I enjoyed the 50s science fiction. When I was a kid, the mm. 50s science fiction radiation fear movies, was I was mm. obsessed with them, but I never thought in terms of making movies myself. Mm. Ever and in fact, I was supposed to be a cartoonist oh, okay. uh, because I can draw. Huh. I have a natural gift of the only natural gift I have is drawing. Mm. Uh, I guess it came from my mother. So, um, but it was seeing Blow Up, mm. the movie Blow Up, that made me realize that film was not just like Hollywood, Rock Hudson, but um, a, an art form and a, a tremendous art form and that that was what got me interested in film so ironically I saw it as an art film and the first thing I did was a movie about worms taking over the town <laughs> but it's very artful <laughs> well and it's interesting that all of the films you've directed you've also written so I take it you were never interested uh, so much in directing other people's scripts if you had a vision you had to provide the words as well as uh, tell the cameraman what to do yeah well it's pretty much came naturally to me uh, that the auteur theory the whole mm. the um, I didn't do that consciously but it just came naturally to me to uh uh, you know, people say I'm a better writer than I am a director, and you know, I think it comes down to that my ideas are original because they're personal. They come from me. So, over at first you don't see that, but if you do movies over a long enough period of time, and you have people like you seeing them, you say, like it or not, this is a Jeff Lieberman film, and that's all you could. That's all you can ask for, really. You know, mm. um, having had having made. Squirm, which you said the other night just came out of a dumb idea that you had one day and wrote down about an electrical storm causing worms to go on the rampage. Um, Blue Sunshine seems a far more political film, perhaps some kind of reaction to the so-called loss of American innocence in the 1970s, where the drug culture, the summer of love, the corruption at Watergate all came to kind of bite America in the ass, as it were. Were those kind of things um, what you were considering when you wrote the screenplay? Yeah, it wasn't so much um, bite the American in the ass. It was that my generation, the summer of love generation, the hippies, the 60s, all that stuff that went on, was totally unrealistic of human nature. And I, I you know, I saw it at the time. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, go out in the real world and this is what's going to happen. Mm. And I knew it. And so I prepared myself all during the 60s that I looked like a hippie. I did, you know, I did the drugs. I did the march on Washington. I was at Woodstock. But I also knew, you know, um, this is summer camp time. And, you know, mm. you're going to have to be an adult. So when, so I loved sending up my own generation mm. and that's what I did in Blue Sunshine I mean that's basically what it is is a satire of the baby boomers quote coming of age and facing the music and what better way than to have something that they did come back that's the thing that bites them in the ass mm. it's, it's uh, you know uh, it's a um, an allegory of mm. um, 
you know, I can't say that the entire 60s bites them in the ass, <laughs> but so I just picked the thing, a drug, a particular drug, which I took myself, LSD, mm. but I said, what can I have come back once they're established as yuppies, you know, in the, mm. quote, real world, um, come back and haunt them, and they're going to pay the dues that they never had to pay back then. And that's pretty much what the movie is. Mm. Gee, I put it pretty well, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it also seems that you were working around the same sort of time that David Cronenberg was doing his right. first films. And with both Squirm and Blue Sunshine, you're tapping into that kind of nascent body horror genre that with Squirm, you have the worms penetrating people's flesh. And with Blue Sunshine, you have this drug not only making them crazy, but it caused hair to fall out that's almost like um, radiation poisoning. Yeah. So actually subverting the body is something that you really don't see so much in horror films. It's normally people are the victim of something and then they die rather than it being an ongoing process. Right. Well, the thing about the hair falling out was uh, came naturally to me because I said, what's the worst thing that can happen to the long hair generation? I mean, they were called long hairs. Yeah. There was a very successful show called Hair for a yeah. reason because they, it was cap, it was uh. encapsulating the entire gen, this generation we're talking about hair mm. was everything and now the mop head beetles you know they would always the hair the hair because before that men hadn't worn long long hair for a century mm. you know so i thought well what could happen that both shows an effect of this drug mm. and also is symbolic of flashing back 10 years when everybody had long hair because in the movie nobody has long hair mm. right yeah, yeah. and that so it seemed like a natural perfect thing and it works so was the title then also referring to let the sunshine in from hair no it was <laughs> this title I took all you know I don't know how much you know about LSD but LSD had all these made up names mm. you know and Owsley was the guy who didn't invent LSD that was back in 1939 came from but he uh, popularized the distribution of LSD. Mm. Uh, Timothy Leary brought it to the forefront of what LSD was. So there was Owsley Purple. There was Orange Sunshine. Okay. There was, you know, all these different names, uh, just like they have all different names of heroin. Mm. You know, they just give them names. you got to brand it somehow. So I wrote all the different names of LSDs that... I knew of, and I just mixed and matches, mm. matched them and said, which will be, make the best title for a movie? Mm. And that'll be the name of the drug. And that's <laughs> how I got Blue Sunshine. Nice. You said that you'd been a cartoonist and that you were you know, talented at drawing. So when it came to directing, how many sort of visual notes did you make? You know, would you draw storyboards up to a certain extent before um, starting to roll camera? Well, actually, in Squirm, I did that because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Mm. So I did it. Then, and I had, I didn't have any background or any confidence when I was doing, but what I was doing was not all that complex if you knew what you were doing, which mm. I didn't. When it came to Blue Sunshine, I didn't draw, draw anything. Now, Squirm was more special. Blue Sunshine really didn't have special effects, but I haven't done that since. Now, if you said to me, you know, do Transformers 8 or something, <laughs> I would have to work with a storyboard artist and do all of that, and I maybe could draw it myself. But it was um, a combination of um, being a neophyte in my first film, because I can do the stuff in my head, I, the blocking and what things will look like. I don't have to draw it for somebody else. I can explain it, or I could just mm. set up the camera myself. Mm. 
And with those early films, it seemed that you were quite lucky. With Squirm, the money sort of arrived from um, a theatre duo who wanted to fund a horror movie with Just Before Dawn. It was uh, Yugoslavians who fancied funding a horror film. So did it really feel like being in the right place at the right time at some points in your career? Um, not really. I, I always thought like I did all of this without any luck at all. Okay. You know, uh, What's that country song? Uh, anyway, but I, I never really got lucky at anything. The, and the reason is, like, when I did Squirm, I had two producers mm. vying for the script. They were the only two producers with, that were given the script. So if you mm. would get that kind of reaction, yeah, the timing was right, but it was timing, timing has to do with why I, at that particular time, wrote it. So mm. the timing, they say timing is everything, really is everything. It's not mm. that you won the lottery, why did you write an original script? Now, if you say you wrote the script three years ago and all of a sudden they're looking for this same thing, that's lucky, mm. you know. But um, I would think that 15 other producers at that time would have done it for the same reason. Mm. So I never looked at it as being lucky, mm. you know. I, th I always appreciated my wife's opinion of the idea, being the stupidest idea she ever heard, <laughs> That's still true today, after this movie has been played all over the world. This is 38 years. Mm. It, and it, by the way, this is a, um, for London. Can you mm -hmm. hear this? It played in Piccadilly for a year. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, I could see Deep Throat playing there for a year. Yeah, yeah. But for one year, Squirm played in Piccadilly. Uh, it was a very big hit in England. And um, so it's been on... TV all over the world. It's been in every language, dubbed in every language. Different artwork, mm. different titles. Mm. You know, they change the titles in uh, you know in every country. So, because squirm, the word squirm won't mm. translate. You know, and then uh, VHS, then DVD, and now it's just come out on Blu-ray for mm. another generation. Mm. So, but it's still the stupidest idea <laughs> that my wife ever heard. <laughs> But now I suppose it looks the best that it ever has because if someone has an HD TV and a Blu-ray, yeah. it may look better than some of the prints that were circulating at the time. It, it looks better than the cleanest print that really? came out and the, I'll tell you the reason. The reason is that there's certain things on a low-budget film that back then the lab could only do so much. Mm. So if you have, you, you were um, dictated the budget dictated and you tight schedule so if if you have lighting that like you shoot 12 o'clock during the day 12 um, noon and you have overhead light and by the time you get around to shooting the other actors in November it's setting sun orange okay and they're supposed to be talking to each other so you're going back from like a white overhead soft light to an orange backlight or whatever there's no amount of balancing that the labs could do to make that look right mm. but today digitally they go Ch -ch 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 -ch, and there it is mm. so it actually looks better than the original <laughs> uh it's it's amazing but it's true the lead actors on both Squirm and Blue Sunshine went on to become directors in their own right. Did they ever get back to you and say that you were inspirational to us and it made me want to become a director rather than continue as an actor? Not in so many words, but <laughs> like Don Scardino, who's yeah. a very successful director, he, he says it in a way, he watched me mm. direct and he, and he said, if he can do it, I can do it, but it's like... 
the way he says it, it sounds like it, well I watched Jeff do it it's like you know this if this schmuck can do it you know anybody could do it Salman King mm. um, saw Blue Sunshine and said he has no future as an actor he said I did such a fantastic job and he's like apologizing <laughs> to me because mm. uh, Donnie was great in Squirm mm. but Salman this weird performance he said I ruined your movie that's what he said huh. to me because the, he said the movie is so fantastic and uh, and he never acted again hmm. but he's and really he, memorable his performance yeah mm. but in his mind he saw the um, the difference between what he did and what everybody else was doing so mm. you know I don't really feel that way but that was the reaction and so one has nothing to do with the other and mm. uh, Zalman you say he became a director but it was very specific to this soft core yeah erotic, he, he, that's all he did yeah I mean, at least I suppose Don uh, repaid the favour as you directed an episode of his TV series, yeah, The Life and Times of Molly... Molly Dodd. Molly Dodd. Yeah. That was obviously a very different experience to doing uh, an independent horror movie, doing presumably something you've done quite often, is jumping into a TV series and having to adopt the house style to a certain That's extent. That's the hardest part about it, is that TV directors, especially half-hour TV directors, if they come in from the outside they're basically paying you a lot of money to not do anything. Uh, and I mean that. If you mm. have an established show, you can't um, come in and give any notes to the actors. They mm. look at you like, get them out of here, because they've already... The audience is tuning in to see a continuation of that character that's already been established. Mm. So they call them traffic directors. That's, that's what they call it. It's like, put the camera there, and then when you have sets, there's only so many ways they shoot these like the office you mm. think you're going to go in and find a new way to shoot the office we're going to shoot it from, from the moon you know <laughs> with mm. a telescope so it's, it's really a mechanical thing which I'm not you know really they don't need me to do that kind of stuff and then uh, Donnie's opinion of me he said at that time he said I, you could do this in your sleep he said the problem is you won't <laughs> In other words, he know he knows I can't just do it by rote. And I'm going yeah, to start yeah. ideas, and then the budget goes up, and you have more setups and all of that. And he's absolutely right. He's we're actually going to work together on a developing TV things now. Yeah. Okay. And the first time that you worked on t a TV show, or rather a TV movie, was you did an update of Doctor Frankenstein at the beginning of the '80s with Robert Vaughan and. Um, uh, Terry Gore. I was going to say um, the guy who played Quentin Collins in um, uh, David Selby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What what was that experience like? Oh, uh, that was a nightmare. That was <laughs> uh, that was a horrible uh, thing that I rarely talk about because it was um, it was my idea, but I didn't write that. Okay. It was just my idea. It was called Doctor Franken, and the writer was some playwright that. The furthest thing from somebody you would get to do something that has a genre link to it. I mean, I can't... It's like, oh, let's get Shakespeare. Only this guy's no Shakespeare. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it was just so off. It couldn't have been more off to have him write it. And it was all talk and all bullshit. Can I say bullshit? I can double it. Well, I said that. <laughs> it was all duty. And... Uh, uh, and um, it was just a complete disconnect, and uh, I hated, hated the script, and you know, and to have that kind of regimented thing, and not not having any input at all into the mm. script, it was just 
bad news from day one. Mm. That's all I have to say about <laughs> it. So, unlike your other horror films, that's why that one hasn't been re-released on DVD. <laughs> And that came just after having done Just Before Dawn, as well as Just Before Dawn being your way of adding a feminist slant to something like Deliverance. I guess feeling so handcuffed doing this TV horror movie, it let you do another one that was completely under your own terms. Oh, yeah, that, that was a big relief to me because, you know, I started to doubt, like, you know, well, am I just working? Like, if this is the big time, mm. then I can't do this. But then I came back and did Just Before Dawn, and, um, you know, everybody said I did a tremendous job. So I said, okay, it's not me, it's them. Mm. But, you know, I can't work in that kind of... A lot of people can. Mm. They're called hacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they make a lot of money. Mm. So um, I, it's just not my personality because I always... Uh, you know, when I do a film, even if I wrote it, mm. I, I um, think of things while we're shooting and come up with scenes. I don't know if you see Satan's Little Helper. There's a thing with a cat that everybody talks about. It's not in the script that I wrote. I thought of it while we were shooting, and I said, let's do this in the afternoon, and they had to go get a cat. And, the, and it, I knew how to shoot it in my head, but it, everybody panicked because it wasn't on the schedule. But I have the confidence that I know enough to know I can do that and be that um, spontaneous you mm. know on a low budget on a high budget that's easy to do because mm. you don't you say well let's shoot it we don't have to use it but <laughs> on a low budget it's half a day on a 22 day schedule you better use it mm. you know mm. and it worked out well one of the most um, startling images in Just Before Dawn is the way that the heroine dispatches the killer at the end and it's kind of what you'd expect one of the monsters to do in one of these movies rather than the, the survivor. Was that something that was in the script right from the start? Not at all. Oh, Most okay. of the stuff, I totally, okay. re, uh, I totally um, rewrote the script I was given. I mean, mm. from page one. It mm. was called The Last Ritual, and it was about snakes, <laughs> a snake ritual, okay. believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, and the, the lead character was forced to marry mm. um, one of the hillbilly guys, uh, and the snake ritual was part of the marriage ceremony. I said, out. I took all that stuff out, and I fashioned this deliverance story. So that fisting, so-called, mm. scene was the way I... It came is very sexual. The way mm -hmm. I once I realized what it was and I was uh, I was blocking it. I said she's basically. Can I say? F you'll edit it uh, out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and it, because you see the way I shot it, where she mm. straddles him and everything. Yeah. But to come up with it, I said, how realistically? How could a girl who weighs 115 pounds, soaking mm. wet, and this other this monster guy weighs six, 360 pounds he's got a machete mm. all of that how could you realistically not movie but in real life mm. take him out take him out and uh so I eliminated all the movie things that she would do. You know, there's a convenient rock nearby, yeah, and yeah. you always cut to her hand going to grab the rock or the knife or the machete. Mm. And then, you know, once you see that thing she's grabbing for, you know, you know. that... Yeah, yeah. that She's gonna, well, so, and I was thinking, okay, maybe she's going to rip out his throat or something with her teeth, and I certainly didn't see that coming, what yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, once I eliminated all the things 
the movie things. Mm. And what could she possibly do besides die? He's crushing mm. her. Mm. And there it was. And I went, bingo. I, I said, I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but I, you know, but that's what I got to do. Mm. And so <laughs> that was the hardest um, shot. I didn't even, um, in Oregon, we didn't even shoot. Mm. Um, if anybody sees the movie, um, the, the shot where her fist actually goes into the mouth was mm. done at my house three months later in the back, my backyard. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, and then it was intercut with what we did on the location, mm. a uh, a um, mannequin arm on, mm. in her sleeve. Yeah, yeah. The mannequin arm had no hand, and that was in his throat, in mm. his mouth. See, so you cut it, it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I guess finally, we've not really spoken about remote control. I guess you said that the horror films, of the nineteen fifties, the schlocky ones, were the things that inspired you. Was that kind of the film that you made that was most a homage to those kind of movies it was a, absolutely it was a, a homage to uh, the sci-fi 50s 50s um, movies but in a sense the, the 80s also because mm. in the 80s home video you have to appreciate that before home video there was no thing that people got in the car went someplace and took it back into the house other than groceries clothes mm. and all all of a sudden there's this thing this video cassette, just the word video cassette is brand new. And they're taking it home by the millions, mm. hundreds of millions of people around the world are all doing this thing. Mm. So wouldn't the aliens, the aliens out there go, <laughs> wow, this is what we were waiting for, for them to develop their te technology to get to this point. We knew this is, you know, this is the way humans evolve. Mm. And they get to this point and now we got them. Because all yeah, we have yeah. to do is impregnate a signal into this cassette, mm. and we got him. And so I thought, it's a movie within a movie, but the whole movie is mm. a 50 science fiction yeah, movie yeah, that yeah. takes place. And if you look at it now, like when I did it, the opening of the movie, it says Earth 1987. Mm -hmm. That's the very first mm. thing you read. Back then, it was 1987. So when people saw it, it's like... Well, we know it's not, it, you know, why don't you just say today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I knew that I, the word Earth means something because you, you're almost looking at it from the outside in. Mm. Well, that didn't work when mm. I did it, but it works gangbusters now yeah, yeah. because it ain't 1987 anymore and you get why it says Earth. So mm. it's like I'm getting my comeuppance or something. <laughs> yeah, I like it so much better than when I did it. Well, it's because, it's I so, guess, so videotapes have almost become a fetish object that yeah. people associate them with the 80s and that kind of culture. Oh, they watch, I have people say to me, they watch the movie and uh, they slow it down and go back because they like they going through that big video store where Kevin mm. Dillon works. Mm. They, oh, Teen Wolf. You know, they're reading mm -hmm. the posters and the titles of the, of the tapes, James Fonda's workout and all that. And it reminds them of their childhood, really. You know, mm. it wasn't my childhood, but, you know, or, or the teen years when they got in, interested in genre films. Mm. It was in video stores. That was their home away from home. So the movie delivers. I, I didn't think of that then, but... Um, the movie delivers to the generation tremendously. By the way, it's available at <laughs> Jeff at JeffLiebermanDirector.com. That's the only place you can get it. Cool. Thank you very much. All right, thank you.
Jeff Lieberman's Squirm is now available on Blu-ray from All Good Stockists. A website devoted to Lieberman's classic 1980s horror film, Remote Control, can be found at jefflieberman.director.com. That's Jeff, L-I-E-B-E-R-M-A-N, director.com. And this year's Cine Excess Festival will be taking place between the 12th and 14th of November at the University of Brighton. This year's cult film director that the festival is celebrating is William Fruitt, who for children of the 80s is probably best known for directing most of the TV series Goosebumps, but back in the 70s he was also a classic slasher director. And Cine Excess will be showing his classic Death Weekend, followed by a Skype interview with the director. Cine Excess also features a crossover with the University of Brighton's comic festival, Graphic Brighton, as 2000 AD auteur Pat Mills will be in discussion with film and pop culture historian Martin Barker, talking about Mills' infamous comic Action, which was all but banned in 1976 due to its infamous content. The pair will be also discussing 2000 AD with artist Jim McCarthy, who has recently returned to the comic to ink a new series of Bad Company. Tickets for the entire academic conference cost £60, and for a screening pass, which includes the Pat Mills panel, it's £10. To buy tickets for Cine Excess, please go to tinyurl.com stroke excess tickets. Next, here's my interview with director Richard Stanley, recorded live in front of an audience before the 25th anniversary screening of his classic killer robot movie, Hardware. The interview was recorded by Skype in the Ritzy Cinema in London, so you'll have to forgive the quality of the recording. So Richard, it's the 25th anniversary of Hardware. Your film has stood up really well over this time, as it's both kind of a product of its times, but like all the best sci-fi, it has an aesthetic that separates it from the era that it was made in. You first worked on the story as a short, and then went to do documentaries in places like Afghanistan and South Africa. What were the various experiences you found kind of helped to create the aesthetic for the film that you made? Well, I guess Hardware maybe succeed better than some of the other low-budget movies from its period, just it's so pessimistic. <laughs> and that, um, generally, if you make the worst possible prediction for the future, you're more likely to be closer to the truth than if you're um, being you know, a little too confident about humanity's chances. I mean, I never figured that we would discover faster than light drives. I didn't really believe in first contact, that humans would make contact with aliens in the next 25 years, that we would have AI within the next 25 years, that we would make it to the stars in the next 25 years, or that we would have nuclear fusion or clean energy. But it was easy to see that we would get overpopulation, that we would deplete our natural resources, that, that um, technology would continue to malfunction, that if we had bit phones, Skype, that people would inevitably start using them for obscene Skype calls and obscene <laughs> bitphone calls. Probably the best call in hardware is the legalized marijuana, which is sold as like a government monopoly um, legal marijuana in the film. I mean, I never thought that would happen. But yeah, here it is. I read that Philip K. Dick was one of your influences. Were you a fan of cyberpunk in general, or just kind of the mind-expanding sci-fi literature that was coming out in the 1980s? Well, I think Philip K. Dick was an influence on everyone mm. in the genre. I mean, clearly we're um, now closer to Dick's 
black iron prison of the future than, than ever. California, where I am now, is the spitting image of Dick's California from Scanner Darkly or Radio Free Albemuth, where I'm very, very close to that reality. I mean, another book that heavily influenced me at the time was a, a book called Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison, which was the basis for Silent Green, uh, which has also been raided by a number of other people notably um, 2000 AD comic, that Catherine Bigelow movie, Strange Days, which um, cribs its ending from um, the Harry Harrison book. Yeah. Uh, still one of the most depressing and accurate portrayals of um, what living in a, um, a food city might be like. Well, I suppose you also take Dick's idea of kibble, all this kind of detritus that surrounds us all the time, to its logical conclusion that it actually becomes a predator. Yeah, I mean, that was also very much an extension of the world we're living in back in the 80s. We were heavily into um, salvage, into um, scrap metal. It was the time of the Mutoid Waste Company, the beginning of the industrial scene. So, I mean, the course of yeah, rebelling against the outside world, I think we filled up our squats and created environments in the places we were staying, which were far worse than the outside world. So, I mean, there's one piece in hardware where the droid goes through the window and shakes the stoned neighbor, just stares through the hole of the wall and sees the skyline and goes, wow, it's beautiful. Um, that's completely the wrong message, which is an accurate recreation of something that happened to the party I was at um, when I was probably about 19. I remember someone threw a chair through the window and we suddenly noticed the outside world was still out there beyond all the, um, the scrap metal we surrounded ourselves with. <laughs> it's a British film, but at the same time, I believe you had an international cast kind of foist upon you to give the film greater appeal. <coughs> Were you happy with the cast that you did get together? Because it's quite an eclectic bunch, but they actually seem to react well off each other. Um, I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out. I mean, originally the script was written to be made in the future London. Mm. Of course, that was one of the unfortunate things about being funded by Miramax, is that we had to have American leads. So it moved away from the original setting, which was a future council space. I mean, basically, Jules on the doll uh, is signing on. Um, in the movie now it's Americanized, so she's receiving welfare checks, but it's the same deal and um, the idea always was that it was some kind of future council space. What we did to try and confuse people is knowing we had American leads, I thought let's um, try and cast as multinationally as possible. So we made certain that the people downstairs were Chinese, the security guards were Jamaican, and uh, of course um, John Lynch is Irish, so I'm trying to get an accurate fix on where the movie is set is hard for people. A lot, a lot of times people think it's Australia or South Africa, they, they don't really believe it's London. Were there any experiences that you had from working in other international locations that infused this environment that you were building for the future London? I think only a sure sense that the first world would eventually slip into the third world. I mean, what you see going on a lot of the time in the third world is a, probably a, a pretty graphic representation of what things are going to be like in another um, 100 or 150 years. Certainly, um, yeah, seeing uh, yeah, Afghanistan, places where you can go into a shop and um, buy under one roof gasoline and boiled sweets, chickpeas, plastic explosives, um, heroin, <laughs> and pretty much everything you want under, under one roof. I mean, I re initially when I was spending time with the Afghans, I thought that they were um, people from the past who had been at home in the Dark Ages or in the time of Christ or year zero. But increasingly, I started suspecting that they might be the people of the future the ones that will come after us, who will um, live in the, the ruins of our cities, um, build whatever um, comes after the West. 
he made another feature, Dust Devil, which I think is a film that deserves a greater reputation. But since then, you've not made another fiction feature. You've just made documentaries, you've made shorts. Do you have a drive to come back and do another scripted film, another genre one, perhaps? Oh, yeah, and no, I'm constantly trying. I mean, over the years, I'm, I'm ceaselessly plotting various strategies to try and get back into the director's chair. And I'm ceaselessly thwarted. I mean, at this point in time, both hardware and Dust Devil are inexplicably owned by Walt Disney. The mouse won't let anyone go near them. I mean, right now there's an initiative going on to try and put together a hardware TV series. But the, um, the problem remains the same as for the last 25 years. The rights are divided between Miramax, um, residual companies in the UK, Disney, MGM claim they own some rights, and trying to get everyone to the table to agree to make a sequel, to um, license the thing to television, to comic books, or to even create a model of the droid thus far has been, yeah, impossible for 25 years. In the meantime, I'm, I'm here in um, the States developing a low-budget sci-fi horror movie adapted from H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, because I've had a long-running love affair with Lovecraft's work. It's always troubled me that none of his stories were adapted by, say, Ingmar Bergman or Andrei Tarkovsky rather than Stuart Gordon. So I'm looking at trying to restore some of the cosmic horror to um, Lovecraft's Wayne Old Ones, who um, I think need to be reinvented and made terrifying again, made back into um, yeah, what the author conceived them to be. Yeah, the project is set up with Elijah Woods Company here in the States. The plan is to start shooting next May, which um, sounds like a long time. It's another um, 11 months. Uh, a huge makeup effect, obviously, as well. We've got a lot of creatures, so we're in time. Well, so many Lovecraft adaptations have just taken his name, put a couple of tentacle monsters in it, and not actually bothered to adapt the original story. So, you know, it'll be nice for change that someone's doing that. Yeah, well, Lovecraft himself always said that all of his stories at their core were about trying to induce a sense of cosmic horror in the audience, a sense of the, the, the tininess of our true position in the universe. And I don't really feel that any of the existing adaptations have really gone there. So um, it, it, it's wide open. To some extent, Lovecraft's like the flip side of H.G. Wells, because both of them have a vision of man's rather pathetic position in the, the infinity of timeless time. Just Wells' characters are a bit pluckier, whereas Lovecraft's characters tend to go mad and break down at the revelation. Cool. Well, I look forward to you making us all feel insignificant against the uh, the horror of the universe. <laughs> well, that said, also on the hardware front, I should say that even though we still haven't got AI, um, we still haven't met aliens, um, mankind still pinwheeling towards self-destruction. The one thing which is progressing very well out there is there are um, working towards having um, fully auto-independent, combat-ready war droids yeah. pretty soon. We will be seeing um, drone soldiers, probably within my life, I imagine, within the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah, which makes your film more prescient than ever. Yeah, unfortunately so. I mean, I certainly hope we get to um, do a sequel or um, find some way of exploring what would have happened if the Mark 13 had been mass-produced and um, wasn't out of control. Because I've always wanted to see how they would function if they were functioning to the peak of their abilities, acting as instruments of state control rather than simply running amok. Yeah. Because yeah, the certain that's how we will see these things deployed when they happen. They're going to be deployed first as like electronic guard dogs. You'll see them patrolling the perimeter between, like, say, Israel and the occupied territories, or um, between the United States and Mexico. 
border areas where um, people can't afford to have uniformed soldiers or um, actual human beings on um, constant 24-hour duty, but where droids with motion detectors and heat sensitive vision um, will be able to do the job. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed we get to see Hardware 2 rather than have to live through it. Uh, yeah, as I always said, I mean, I've always been telling producers that for the last 25 years, if you don't make the film, it will happen. So, they don't believe me. Brilliant. Richard, thank you very much. For more information about the Sci-Fi London Festival, where my interview with Richard Stanley was recorded, please go to sci-fi-london.com. There's a Richard Stanley website run by his fans, www.everythingisundercontrol.org. The final interview in tonight's show with composer Simon Boswell, following a screening of the movie Hardware on the occurrence of its 25th anniversary, about working on the iconic soundtrack as part of the London Sci-Fi Film Festival, Sci-Fi London. The, the score for that movie is a terrific mix of all sorts of different styles. You start off with a bit of, kind of classical western, a bit of prog rock, and then segue into Rossini. I mean, it seems quite an eclectic mix. Yeah. Was that discussions between you and the director, or did he leave it entirely up to um, you? He, he left it up to me, really. We decided the Rossini piece was going to work over the whole kind of mo psychedelic death scene um, <laughs> to give it a bit of kind of classical class if you like but the rest of it he really left up to me I mean mm. he'd made already contact with John Lydon and Iggy mm. and, and I actually had to go and meet Lemmy which is a whole story actually in itself Lenny's, um, Lemmy's a um, collector of Nazi memorabilia uh, which he seemed very intent on showing me <laughs> it's just pretty freaked me out at 9 o'clock in the morning anyway but no the music was a very different blend of all kinds of things mm. I mean uh, yeah your career as a scorer of um, genre film started a few years before this, where you worked on Dario Argento's um, Phenomena. How did that gig come about? Uh, purely random. I mean, as most of my life has been, I'm very fond of the John Lennon quote, which is that life is what happens to you whilst you're busy making other plans. <laughs> and that's certainly what happened to me. I mean, I was, I was in bands and I was a record producer and I happened to be in Rome producing Italian artists, you know, singer-songwriters and pop stars. And I met Dario Argento at a party. It was a completely random sort of thing. And he'd seen one of my bands play in Rome and asked me if I would help. Mm. And to begin with, put me in a studio with two guys from a band called Goblin. So mm. I spent the first two weeks as a film composer we working with Goblin, really. Didn't kind of quite work out, musically speaking. But... Um, I owe Dario a huge amount, really, for getting me going as a film composer. Mm. I mean, were his films uh, the kind of movies that you were watching anyway, or wasn't it a genre you were that familiar with? I was really not familiar. Okay. Anyone that knows me knows that I really... I don't watch horror films. I, I'm, I actually was one of those people that believed all the publicity around The Exorcist and didn't go and see it because I thought it was going to, like destroy my brain or something. I was a very fragile person at that time. So I, I never really watched horror films. And I found myself in this situation in Italy for doing the first 20 movies were largely horror, some, you know, 
kung fu movies and mm. other kind of exploitation films, but I didn't find them frightening because they were, there wasn't any music on it. Oh, I mean, okay. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I was able to deal with it because it, I, I was able to watch it and add something to it that mm. you know wasn't there. Well, so much suspense in movies, particularly, you know, uh, horror and thriller comes from the addition of the soundtrack. I mean, I I believe that someone who worked with Bernard Herrmann uh, said, oh, I just like this scene silent. And Herrmann said, well, I've worked with Hitchcock and he wouldn't have done it silent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I have to say there's only two heroes that I really have amongst film music. I I didn't study it or... uh, But, you know, Bernard Herrmann is one of them. I think really sort of invented... Modern film music, in a way, especially thriller, thriller music and dark music, mm. orchestral music, and the other is Morricone. Mm. And I think you can see both those influences in what I was trying to do, and understand. You know, I, I had not any kind of real knowledge of what film music should be, mm. and I didn't have a complete training in classical stuff or anything like that. So, what you see in hardware was me sampling Stravinsky actually <laughs> I can admit to someone now and trying to make something uh, classical out of it and then uh, from what I'd seen of you know, of the Morricone uh, spaghetti stuff mm. slide guitar Ray Kuda also was a big mm. influence on this film in particular because mm. talking to Richard about it earlier I mean we were talking about how it was a real mixture of different um, elements cyberpunk you know his concerns about uh, downfall of humanity, you know, the aesthetics of the time. So I guess in terms of also adding an eclectic sound to it, you know, you could pretty much take things from all sorts of sources because the disparate nature of the film was part of the plot. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think actually, and it's been an education for me, and I've now done about 100 movies, is that it's the directors that are secure enough in what they're doing to let me do what I want to do, to get the best out of me. I mean, you get, that's where my best scores have been, I think. And it's the kind of slightly neurotic side, which is especially prevalent in, in uh, Hollywood, mm. where everyone's trying to control every little, you know, bit of it, and are paranoid about the audience sort of, you know, following it or not understanding it, where that doesn't get, certainly doesn't work for me. You collaborated with Richard again on Dust Devil, which I guess meant that you completely got to scratch that spaghetti western itch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that was, you know, I have very basic ideas about it. It wasn't like I I was huge, sort of hugely knowledgeable about spaghetti westerns or their scores or anything. I had seen The Good, Bad and The Ugly, and so I knew what that was about. But I get inspired by things like sand. Mm. You know, it was the same beginning of hardware. I just saw lots of sand. I thought, oh, that reminds me of Paris, Texas. Mm. So <laughs> I did slide guitar. I know it sounds awful to say that, but those, those are the kind of things that influence me rather than going, I'm going to sort of stylistically rip off Morricone. But Dust Devil seemed to me, you know, that Richard was presenting a sort of the man with no name, but as a, you know, horror character. Mm. Uh, so I thought that this might work to give him a bit of style, actually, mm. and a bit of class, rather than just portraying him as a devil, mm. um, musically speaking. Mm. Do you talk about working with, with uh, Jodorowsky? Yeah, Jodorowsky, this is interesting because it's, yet again, it's something accidental that happened to me that's proved to be one of the kind of best things in, in my life and my career, really. Santa Sangre was produced by Dario Argento's brother, Claudio, mm. uh, who introduced me as being this sort of, I suppose crazy Englishman that was doing all these synthy <laughs> scores for Italian films. It was an absolute education for me. I'd seen El Topo and thought that that was brilliant, 
Then when I met Alejandro, he was incredibly accommodating like Richard Stanley is. Though he has been a musician and scored some of his own films, he just let me do what I wanted. He, he wanted my take on it. Mm. And I'm ever so pleased that he let me do that because it's sufficiently weird that I think it still stands up today. Mm. I'm going to be releasing the definitive Santa Sangre score album later this year. And we're planning to do the whole film live, actually, with mariachi bands and circus <laughs> bands and everything. Amazing. I recently found all the recordings from on the set as well. So um, the album of the live event should be really cool. Cool. Well, are you going to tour with that or just one off? There is a plan to tour it worldwide, actually, wow. wherever in the world we'll have it. Huh. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. When you're scoring a film, do you watch the rushes or do you wait until the final edit? You know, it's a, the theory is that the film is finished, mm. locked, as they say, that the picture's locked. But the reality these days is that it changes all the time. So I've done very few films where I've written music before seeing a lot of the movie, to be mm. honest with you. And I very much work from the visual image. I mean, it's like an input that comes through your eyes and out through your hands, like a mm. silent pianist, you know, at a, at a movie. Mm. Yeah. Because I've done a bit of editing myself and you watch a scene without a score and it seems a bit slow and then you add music and actually it picks up the pace. So conversely, as it kind of changes the film when you're adding levels to it, it might be better to leave the edit loose and then add the music and then do a tighter edit. It's, it's, that's true and I think a lot of editors like to work that way and that's, that's absolutely fine. It's sort of mm. difficult for me because I'm not sure you know, where I stand in terms of what's going to, you know, sometimes you write music for a scene and then they chop like two seconds out of it, which is worse than top, chopping 20 seconds out of it because mm. you've done something to fit that and then it, you're faced with that. Ah, what do I do now? You know, you can spend more time trying to rewrite something than if you started again, actually, mm. in a lot of those circumstances. But generally, you know, it's, it is a two-way, it's a two-way street. You have to understand, at this sort of stage, it's very interesting, I've done a lot of movies, like um, Danny Boyle's first film, Shallow Grave, mm. you know, where everyone looks at it in the wake of what is a spectacular career. And at the time, on these first movies, there's such a scramble, you know, to get the thing made, to get the thing done, and no one really knows if it's any good, if anyone's ever going to see it, you know. What was Danny like to work with? Danny? He was Fine. As I said, it was, it's, you know, he was... <laughs> Doesn't that sound terrible? It seems slightly uh, guarded. <laughs> guarded. Um, he, it was clearly, it was a film that was very different at mm. the time. Um, and we all knew that there was something in that that was really good. I've had that experience with him and with several other directors where they're, they're actually more into bands and, to, and into songs and mm. tracks. And he put a certain amount of that into Shadow Grave, which was, you know, the left field track on the, on the beginning, which I actually mm. edited to fit the picture, mm. um, and a few other things. It's slightly weird for me, because I know that actually mm. their heart is more in sort of dance music or something. Mm. So I was being the pure film composer, doing the, <laughs> the du emotional duties by the audience, when yeah, yeah. I know that's actually not necessarily what the director is interested in himself. But Danny mm. was, you know, clearly knew what he wanted mm. and that's a good thing well you seem to be a composer who doesn't mind sharing the the soundtrack as it were with the odd pop track that's used you know kind of backing with the scene i was listening to a discussion on radio 4 the other morning and someone was complaining about these jukebox you know soundtracks you get for movies rather than old-fashioned scores that go throughout yeah i mean i'm in two minds about it i mean obviously songs are important to movies you know and they share a kind of pop pop culture 
with films. But I do think, and I had this discussion with Danny during train spotting because I was mm. involved in train spotting, though sort of through the process, Danny decided he wanted to use just tracks mm. and not score at all, which is all fine and you can't fault it. I mean, he picked some really, really good songs. But there was one point during the film and some of the screenings we were having where I forget which track it was now. I think that if you put a song onto a movie, there's a point at which, especially if it's really well known, that you're tapping your feet to it, and if you know the lyrics, it can take you out of the film. Mm. And, and, and I had a sort of, sort of energised discussion with Danny about this particular point, where it's where, I forget the character's name, but where he goes cold turkey. Mm. And this track works fantastically, this, very, this sort of dance track coming in, like this mm. inevitable, horrible thing coming... But it, when it gets emotional later on, you're still tapping your feet to this dance rhythm. And I, I had this discussion. I said, do you really want that? Mm. But, and that was just my take on it. So it can be frustrating. But also, you know, I, I'm in a band and I like doing that stuff too. Cool. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You can find out more information about Simon Boswell's work by going to simonboswell.com which will shortly include information about his tour with Alejandro Jodorowsky's classic film Santa Sangre, which he composed the music for and will be performing live on stage at various venues following and during screenings of the film. The Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance FM was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and to play us out, here's Simon Boswell once more, performing live part of his own soundtrack for hardware, playing electric guitar to accompany the film's end credit song, The Order of Death by Public Image Limited. And the Electric Sheep Film Show will be back on air again at 8pm on the third Wednesday of November. Thanks for listening.
This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.